Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Gracious Lord, you keep your promises and are ever faithful to us. But without you, we will always be rebellious against you. Therefore, we ask you to work through the words of today's sermon to keep us faithful to you. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. To remind you of that account, I will read the first verse. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, focus your attention on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, from this pulpit, you've heard me go through a hundred times how God raises up the nation of Israel down there in Egypt to be a nation. And then he delivers them when Egypt enslaves them with the plagues. And when Pharaoh chases after him, he parts the Red Sea and they turn against him. And he feeds them miracle quail in the desert and miracle bread and gives them miracle water. And they go rebel against him. They don't trust him. Finally, God has enough of that. And that generation won't enter the promised land. The next generation will. And there are people in the next generation that don't trust in him as they conquer that promised land. And we see one generation after the next. That's the book of Judges constantly turning against the Lord. And when they repented, he would send one person to bring them back into their sovereignty, to take off their oppressor. Today's Old Testament lesson, nothing was new. We see God patiently offering him his grace there in Amos, saying, you've forsaken me for other gods, but repent. Look at what forsaking me has done. Look at how you treat each other. But repent, and I will restore you. But they don't. Ultimately, God ends up sending the Assyrians to that northern kingdom and they will cease to exist. In our gospel lesson, we see a rich young man who thinks he's saved by his keeping the law, but he doesn't realize what's inside his heart. That text often gets twisted and people do the same thing I'm going to preach against today. They'll turn around and make it sound like being rich is a sin. No, it's that when we cling to those riches, when we let them have a place in our heart that God should have, But that rich young man, well, he was a Jewish man. He'd been raised around the temple. He should have known better. In all of this, we see people who had the word of God becoming unfaithful. And in today's sermon, we will answer the question and see how to avoid the faithlessness that destroyed Israel. The epistle to the Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians who miss the good old days of the temple. They miss the high priest with his garb. They miss that one atonement sacrifice with the scapegoat every year where the sins of Israel was put on it. They miss all that pomp and ceremony. And they don't realize all that pointed to Christ. He fulfilled it. He's the true scapegoat. He's the atonement. And so the epistle to the Hebrews is written to them showing how all of those things were meant to point to Christ. And that Christ is above the angels. So, our text really to understand it begins at at Hebrews chapter 2 verses 17 and 18 which says, For this reason he had to become like his brothers in every way, we're talking about Jesus, in order that he would be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, so that he could pay for the sins of the people. Indeed, because he suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Only Christ's sacrifice washes our sins away and he went to that and did that for you as he was on the cross. He was the priest and the sacrifice. It all pointed to him. And so when you're tempted, you and I, we fall into temptation. We're pretty miserable at standing up to it. But we have a high priest who did and he has removed our sin and our failures. 
Then our text begins at, at verse 1, and a literal translation of the Greek, in consequence of this, those verses I just read about Christ being our high priest, in consequence of this, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, focus your attention on the apostle and high priest of our confession, namely Jesus. I could preach an entire sermon on this sentence. The name Jesus means Savior. God took on human flesh to save you. And we're told to focus our attention, put our thoughts on that. Now, that doesn't mean that we've got to go off and climb on top of some hill where we'll be left alone and just stay there in the Word of God constantly. It means let this be the hub of all of your thoughts. And what is to be the hub of all of our thoughts? What is all of our thinking to be based on? That Jesus is the Apostle. Well, there were 12 apostles. Isn't this confusing? The Greek word apostle means sent out with the commission. Jesus is the one sitting on the throne of God, the God from all eternity, begotten from the Father, whom God the Father and God the Holy Spirit sent out to be our Savior. He's the one who was to live righteous for us in our place. He's the one who is to remove our sins. He fulfilled that commission. And we're told high priest. That's how he fulfilled the, con the, the commission. He was the sacrifice. He is our substitute. So, in consequence of this, we want to share in our heavenly calling by focusing our attention on the apostle and high priest of our confession. What do you mean our confession? Well, we just sang that hymn, Your work's not mine, O Christ. Did you realize what you were boldly confessing as you sang it? Let me read one stanza. Your death not mine, O Christ, he paid the ransom due. Ten thousand deaths like mine would have been all too few. To whom but you, who can alone for sin atone, Lord, shall I flee. Whenever we confess that Jesus has done all the work for our salvation, that he was holy, when we confess that he's true God who has taken on true humanity we are confessing that Jesus is the apostle and high priest. Now, back to that text. In consequence of this, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling. The writer can call you, and yes, sisters here today, he calls you brothers because you get the inheritance too. You're on equal status. So before the law, we're all equal now. We're holy because Christ has put his holiness on you, his righteousness, and he's given that to you through faith. And so he also says who share in the heavenly calling. God, before all eternity, had planned out your salvation. He has called you to be his child. In Jesus' case, to be his brother. Why? Because he wants to give you the new heavens and the new earth that he's going to create that are free of sin, free of the consequences, free of death, free of the miseries of this world, and he's going to give you that glorified body that's free of sin as well. So concentrating on focusing our attention on our apostle and high priest of our confession means we view the world through the eyes of faith. We take everything that happens. When misery happens, people want to scream, why is God doing this to me? We view it through the cross of Christ and say, God would not allow this if he didn't have my good in mind. When we face death, we view it through the cross of Christ and say, throw your worst at me, death, because my Savior rose and he too shall rise my body. And until then, I will be before the throne of God. Focusing our attention on that means it dominates our thoughts. Everything is now seen through the eyes of Christ, crucified and risen for us. So how do we avoid the faithlessness that destroyed Israel? Concentrate on and confess Christ. Let that dominate your thoughts 
and confess it to others. This is another simple way of saying, come to the word, hear what God has done for you in his word, hear his promises to you, and God will work the faith. Stay in the word. All righty. But the problem, as we saw in our Old Testament lesson, is the people of Israel would substitute something for God, even though God was kind and merciful and forgiving, and say, I'll give you another chance if you repent. And we saw that rich young ruler who had it pointed right out before him. Your mammon, that's money and its possessions that it buys. Your mammon's your God. You will forsake God for your mammon. And he did, even though he knew better. They substituted something else for God. And in Jesus' time, one of the big substitutes was the law. The Pharisees, like that rich young ruler, thought as long as they externally kept it, they didn't focus on their thoughts and the impurity of their heart. As long as they just went through the outward motions then they were saved. They substituted the law that was given through Moses for Christ. But our text says something about Christ being our high priest. It says, who continues being faithful to the one who made him as also Moses was faithful in God's whole house. The law was given through Moses. It does give God's glory, but the law does not trump the good news of salvation in Christ. Jesus continues being faithful. And how can we say to the one who made him, because Jesus is true God, he's begotten by the Father in all eternity as to his godness, as to his deity. But he was knit in the virgin's womb as to his humanity. And so God has made him, and he's faithful to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, was faithful to the plan to save you from the get-go. Moses was faithful in leading Israel out of Egypt and, and up to the promised land. We don't want to lessen his glory, but Jesus was faithful as well. And we're told, in fact, Jesus has been judged as worthy of greater glory than Moses in accordance with the fact that the one who has built the house has more honor than the house. It makes a great analogy here. Now, when I think of a, when I look at certain things of architecture and that, and I think of a great architect, I can't help but to think of Frank Lloyd Wright, mostly because of a Simon and Garfunkel song. But that's a story for another day. But really, when you see architecture that Frank Lloyd Wright designed, it screams out, you see the signature of Frank Lloyd Wright. He was a very gifted architect. The building itself points to its designer. Do you understand what's being said here? Moses is not the designer. We're going to get into this in a moment. Moses is one of the bricks that formed the building. Jesus is the one who spoke those words, let there be light thousands of years before he would take on human flesh. Moses is worthy of glory for what he did, but he's not worthy of the same glory that true God who actually saved us did, whose plan on building the house that is the invisible church was to live in our place and die in our place so that we would be perfect bricks for his temple, the invisible church of all believers. So we're told for every house is built by someone and God is the one who built everything. No matter what, God gets all the glory because he is the grand architect, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we're told, and so on the one side, Moses was faithful in God's whole house in such a way as an attendant towards the testimony of the things which would be spoken. It's my very literal translation of the Greek. An attendant. We often translate that as servant, but there's another word in Greek for servant that really means slave. Moses, in this case, was not a slave. 
And in fact, the Greek word used is the word we get our word therapy from. Like when you have knee surgery and you go in for therapy and they help you work your knee, that's for you. They're benefiting you, but they're not a slave to you. Moses was a voluntary servant. He was reluctant at first. Lord, I stutter. Well, use your brother. Lord, this. And finally, God says, go do it. But Moses did lead the people out of Egypt and to the borders of the promised land as one who was there to give them therapy, to point them to the Savior, to the healing power of our Lord. And you've often heard me say we have to pay attention to the Greek preposition. And the Greek preposition used is toward and into. Like after the voters meeting today, I will head towards my home and arrive at that destination. I go into it. What I'm getting at here is towards and into the testimony of the things that would be spoken. Let me put this in plain, simple English. Moses didn't screw with God's word. There it is. Moses' job was to proclaim the word. And he did that faithfully with the Ten Commandments. But he also did that faithfully in pointing them to the coming Savior. But Moses was a believer like you and I. He was a sinner like you and I. At one point in time, him and Aaron, when the people grumbled for water, they were to pronounce a word of grace. Instead, he pronounced a word against their sin when he struck the rock. And for that, God said, you will not enter the promised land yourself. Moses still got to go to heaven. So even Moses was not perfectly faithful, but we're told yet on the other side, Christ is faithful in such a way as the son over God's house. Now, the inspired word of God that Moses recorded in the first five books of of the Bible are error free. We can trust 100 percent in that. And that's important because Moses was faithful with that message. But Moses, like you and I, was just a brick that makes up the temple. Jesus is God. He's the architect. He's faithfully ruling over that to bring you on, to make you a brick, and then you are a priest that serves it. The Jewish Christians that this epistle is written to, they were wanting to go back to a lot of the Old Testament stuff that Christ had fulfilled, things commanded by Moses. They were letting Moses have more glory than Jesus. We can do that in our life as well, brothers and sisters in Christ. Let the servant have more glory than the head. Sometimes... We confuse pastors or elders or presidents or Sunday school teachers for Jesus himself and expect them to act as if they're true God and know all things. Like Moses, we're sinners. We will at one point in time or another let you down because we have weak human flesh. We can turn around and let the law be a means of salvation that came through Moses. If I act holy enough, we call that being a hypocrite, by the way, or a Pharisee. No, it's only Jesus living in as our substitute that saves us. His Holy Spirit, once we're saved, then empowers us to struggle against our sin because we're saved, not in order to be saved. Many things we can let substitute. Sleep can become more important to us on a regular basis. Work, jobs, food, these sorts of things. So how to avoid the faithfulness that destroyed Israel is do not let a servant, even somebody who's serving something that's meant to serve the good news of forgiveness, don't let a servant in the house have the place of the head have the place that Jesus Christ has. He's the Savior, nothing else. All righty, then we get to verse 6. Yet on the other side, Christ is faithful in such a way as a son over God's house, which we ourselves are. Really, the Greek says, which we continue being. You are one of the bricks that form the temple of the Lord, and you get to be a priest that serves that temple whenever you point somebody to Christ, whenever you confess Christ. But there's one little warning here. We can fall off of that. We can cease to be that building. So he says, so long as we hold fast to the boldness and grounds for boasting of our hope. 
Ultimately, to simplify this, so long as we continue trusting Christ is the Savior, as long as we let him have that place. But he says this in a very neat way. Let's go with hope first. As I've said in English a hundred times, hope often mostly has connotations of disappointment. You've often heard me say every month with Menards, they have a, you know, you go, if you're shopping in the store, you register at the kiosk and you're signed up to win the car for the month or the truck. And I hope I win it this month, but I think right now it's a Chevy car that I'm not interested in and I haven't gone shopping at Menards. So my hope there is pretty confident I'm not going to win because I haven't even registered yet. That's not the hope that Christians have. The hope that you have is a promise God made to you when you were baptized, is a promise God makes to you in His Word that you're confessing Christ. So long as you know Christ is your Savior, all the promises of Scripture are yours. The forgiveness of sins, you can confidently expect your sins are wiped away today. And the sins you'll commit tomorrow, wiped away. That doesn't mean we use them as an excuse to embrace sin. You can confidently expect... No matter what happens in this world, you are getting the new heavens and the new earth because you know Jesus is your Savior. And you confidently expect the new, that you will get that glorified body. You confidently expect when life is thrown its worst at you that God would not allow that unless He had a good in mind for you and for your neighbor through it. So you have a boldness in confessing that. When fear of being persecuted comes, we can be bold because we know, take my life. You can't actually take my soul. God has it and he's going to give me an even better body when it's said and done. A glorified body. This gives us a boldness. And when we look at our neighbor who if they don't trust in Christ, they are going to go to hell. It gives us a boldness to say, I don't want to see you there. So I will tell you, it's very simple. Christ is the one we confess and we point, we confess Christ to them. And it's also our grounds for boasting. I don't boast because I came to church on a snowy Wyoming morning. I don't boast because I'm such a good hit guy at proclaiming to Wyoming people. My boast is that I'm a rotten sinner, but God did something about it. God loved you and he loved me enough to take on human flesh and make you his. That's what we boast in. We can boast that heaven is ours. And, and lots of times people who are, who are bent on thinking that they have to do something in the law in order to be saved, they say... You guys are too confident in your salvation. But God wants you to be confident in your salvation. So you have a grounds for boasting. Because it's not you. It's not your efforts. You never have to worry about if you've been good enough or done enough. You can boast boldly. Christ is good enough and he did do enough. So how, can we, how to avoid the faithfulness that destroyed Israel? Hold fast by the faith God has given to you to that confession of Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the rich young ruler gave something in his heart a place that God should have. The people of of Israel, they were chasing after Baal and other false gods. God is gracious. He woos and wins us with that gospel even when we're rebellious. We see today how we can avoid that faithlessness that destroyed Israel. Concentrate on and confess Christ. Don't let a servant in the house have the place of the head. Christ is the head. You and I are the servants. Hold fast by faith to the confession of Christ, the faith that God has given you. Amen. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and present you faultless in the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all time now and to all eternity. Amen.